Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Five, four... Three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast weekend. Happy New Year. This is our first show in the new year, 2024. And we're going to talk about a topic I know some of you may feel a little exhausted by. would like to just pretend it doesn't exist anymore. COVID, respiratory illnesses, overall health of America. Well, we're going to do that anyway, even though you might not want me to do it. We're going to do it. So have some fun. Pay attention. Our guest is Dr. Jerome Adams. He was Surgeon General during the Trump administration. He's written a new book about that service in part in public health called Crisis and Chaos. Dr. Jerome Adams is also at now at Purdue University. Dr. Adams, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me on and Happy New Year. So tell my audience what you do at Purdue University now. Well, I'm the Director of Health Equity, which means that I'm trying to help people uh, make better choices about their health. Uh, I'll give you a a very concrete example. We've got a large rural community in Indiana, and we want to make sure people have access to broadband so that they can participate in telehealth appointments. We want to make sure communities have access to fresh fruits and vegetables that are nutritious and affordable so that they can make better choices about what they eat. We know during the pandemic, for instance, obesity and diabetes were risk factors for COVID. Uh, Well, uh, unfortunately, if you can't afford to eat Uh, healthy, or if you don't have a grocery store in your neighborhood, then you're going to find yourself at risk for future threats like COVID. I want to take your book, Crisis and Chaos, in order. I have read most of it. It will sound as if I've just read the first couple of pages with these early questions, but I promise you I've read more than that. But very (laughs) early in the book, you talk about three things in America and your experience, poor, black, and rural. What differences did those three things make in your life? 
Well, uh, I try to help people understand where I was coming from. You know, we create caricatures of different public figures. And uh, in many ways, uh, I wanted people to understand that I grew up as an asthmatic. I grew up as someone who didn't have access to the best health care because I was rural and because my family was poor. And I grew up uh, understanding that I may not live to see adulthood uh, because of the medical comorbidities that, that I had. And so that's a big part of the reason why I chose to serve in the role of the of United States Surgeon General. And during the pandemic, uh, I always tried to speak to those folks who didn't have a seat at the table. I can't tell you how many times I was the only, and I'm doing my air quotes here for those listening in the room, I was the only person of color. I was the only person who'd grown up in a rural community and understood that uh, the dynamic was very different when you're telling people to uh, to, to do telehealth appointments or to uh, to do homeschooling when you live in a uh, farm community where you don't have broadband uh, access. Um, I was the only person who'd grown up below the poverty line and understood, hey, um, telling people to stay home is fine if they've got health insurance and if they've got um, paid time off. That's a whole different story if you're someone who works in the gig economy. And if you don't work, you don't eat. Also, uh, if you're telling someone, oh, just run down to your local pharmacy, it could be 20 miles away and you may have inadequate or variable transportation. Well, I, I told a story right in the very beginning about a, a asthmatic attack that I had when I was younger where I almost died. And the closest hospital was 45 minutes away in that rural community. Uh, and that hospital didn't have a pediatrician on staff because, again, it was a critical access rural hospital. So they had to put me in a helicopter and fly me to Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C. to save my life. Uh, I'm very blessed to be here today, but far too many people, particularly people of color, black boys are three times as likely to die of asthma as, uh, as anyone else out there, don't have those opportunities. And in my role as a public servant, I wanted to raise awareness of those issues, and I want to work to create healthier communities where everyone uh, can dream of growing up to be the Surgeon General of the United States. There's something else you raised early in the book that I want to drill down on just for a second, clinical research representation. What is yes. that, and why is that important? Well, uh, again, I spoke about my asthma. The device that we use to measure um, how sick you are if you're having an asthma attack is called a pulse oximeter. It measures the amount of oxygen in your blood. Those devices were not tested on people of color. So we didn't know for many decades that they would give falsely elevated readings for people of color. How many times uh, when I was growing up was I told you're fine and sent home because of those falsely elevated readings? Even the medications we prescribe for asthma have now been shown to behave differently in people from different ethnic backgrounds. And so we need representation in clinical trials so that we can actually make good and appropriate recommendations to people um, who come from different backgrounds, number one, but also so that they have trust. I talk about in the book uh, my, my involvement with Operation Warp Speed. And in August of 2020, uh, we were given the shocking news that we may have a vaccine by the end of the year. Um, but we also were given the shocking news that participation in the clinical trials at that point amongst people of color was around three to four percent. And so Tony Fauci, Francis Collins, the NIH director and I came together and we said, look, 
If we allow these trials to go across the finish line with three to 4% participation from people of color, they are not going to trust or take this vaccine, even though they're the ones being hardest hit by the pandemic. That is a very real example of how and why participation in clinical trials is important. And I'm proud to say that uh, by the end of those trials, we had over 30% participation from people of color. So it shows that it can be done if you actually make it a priority. And it shows that people will ultimately have greater trust in the healthcare industry if they feel like they have been involved in the trials. Dr. Adams, do you believe as a country we are trying to forget COVID? Well, I absolutely believe that. Uh, COVID was a traumatic experience. Uh, We all have PTSD uh, and we have to acknowledge that. Uh, We were out of school, uh, drug overdoses and and, and overdose deaths went up, Um, mental health issues went up, Uh, people lost their lives and their livelihoods. And we just wanna put it in the rearview mirror, but we've gotta understand COVID is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. But we also have to understand that that doesn't mean it has to rule our lives. We've got many more tools to be able to to deal with the virus. And I talk about these in the book. I literally have a chapter in the book that talks about what we can do as individuals, but also what we need to do as a society to be able to, to live with COVID moving forward. But I don't want us to focus solely on COVID. It doesn't matter if it's COVID or MPOX or the yearly flu. We keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. We keep acting like, oh my gosh, where did this come from? No one could have ever seen it coming. Um, If we have good surveillance, good data collection, if we inform the public through good communication, and if the public uh, allows themselves to avoid the partisanship and actually make, make appropriate decisions for themselves about whether to get vaccinated, whether to wear a mask, um, whether to go out and exercise, then I think we will all be in a better place moving forward, COVID or no. Dr. Adams, do you think for those Americans who do remember COVID, they misremember it through a political lens? So this is a big theme in my book. Uh, and I want to give you just one concrete example, a little nugget from the book. Uh, this is October of 2020, the last presidential debate. Joe Biden uh, noted that we'd had 220,000 COVID deaths at that point. And he said, any president responsible for this many deaths should no longer serve. Well, fast forward to the end of 2021, a full year into the Biden administration, plus vaccines, plus home testing, uh, plus ample PPE, we had 360,000 deaths. And this is not to cast blame on Joe Biden. It's to say that, hey, uh, we don't fix this with Democrats um, or we don't fix this with Republicans. We fix this by understanding the root causes and coming together as a nation to tackle some of these tough issues. That is the voice of Dr. Jerome Adams. He is currently at Purdue University. He is the author of Crisis and Chaos, which is a book about his experience in the Trump administration as the Surgeon General. And we are going to go to break here and set up for segment two of The Takeout. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of things, including a chapter entitled Skunk in the Room. And nobody wants to be the skunk in the room, but sometimes circumstance puts us in that position. More on that when we come back. I'm Major Garrett, segment two of The Takeout in just one second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, 
Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to The Takeout. Welcome to our nice Zoom studio here on the third floor of the Washington, D.C. Bureau of CBS News. Dr. Jerome Adams is our special guest, Surgeon General in the Trump administration. His book, Crisis and Chaos, one of the chapters titled Skunk in the Room, how did you become the skunk in the room, Dr. Adams? Well, uh, one of the things I point out is that we all, uh, and when I say we, I mean the doctors on the COVID task force all took turns being the skunk in the room. People often think of Tony Fauci as being the only one who spoke out. I, I point out in the book that Tony did speak out. Uh, Tony was also protected in a way that other people weren't. He worked at NIH and literally could not be fired uh, by the president of the United States. Whereas myself, Dr. Burks, even um, Dr. Redfield, the CDC director, could be fired with a tweet. And so uh, I want people to understand that we were all working within our own lanes to try to get appropriate information to the president internally, but also to the public externally. Uh, and we all took our, our, our turns taking our lumps. One of the times I took my lumps within April of 2020, when I tried to advise the public about the disproportionate rate of COVID infections and deaths among black and brown communities. And uh, I was at the podium in the White House and I literally walked people through how the black and brown community were disproportionately dying from COVID. And I explained that it wasn't their fault, that it was because in many cases they live in communities where they can't take precautions like staying home or isolating, um, and where uh, they have higher incidences of diabetes, obesity, because they can't make healthy choices in their communities. But then I finish by saying, make sure you take measures to protect yourself, uh, like, like avoiding alcohol and drugs, like trying to eat healthy, um, like exercising. And because I was part of the Trump administration and I was standing next to Donald Trump, the media framed that as me victim blaming. And it's interesting, it had a chilling effect on our ability to actually be able to talk about baseline health as a important way to protect yourself because everybody saw, hey, if the Surgeon General got ripped to shreds for suggesting that people should, should, should do something to protect themselves from COVID uh, by, by, by being healthier, then we're not gonna talk about that. And, and uh, I, it's, it's, it's something I want us to really take as a lesson moving forward that we can't 
look at these things through a partisan lens. And we have to understand that no matter what the threat is, uh, our baseline health is going to help determine our resilience and our ability to be able to fight that threat. You also use vernacular language to try to catch the attention of those listening, watching. And you got some preclearance, as I understand from the book, from the head of the NAACP about this kind of vernacular language, big mama, abuela, things like that. People heard that in their ears and they thought something else was happening that wasn't happening, if I read the book correctly. Well, you know, and, and this is fascinating, too. In many ways, because of who I was standing next to, Donald Trump, and because people's assumption that I was a, a Republican hardcore Trump supporter, um, I'm actually an independent and I was there to serve my country, not to serve Donald Trump. Uh, people literally did not want to allow me to be black. And so I called my grandmother Big Mama. That is literally what I called her. Uh, I have a brother-in-law and people in my family who are Hispanic who refer to their their loved ones as abuelas and abuelos. And so I said, do it for your, do it for Big Mama, do it for your abuelo. And as you mentioned, uh, I actually got this advice from the president of the NAACP uh, and a conversation where he said, we need to talk to people in a very real sense. And so I did that in a very authentic sense. And people thought I was again, a pandering to the black community and that I wasn't allowed to use these words, even though people like Maxine Waters use this vernacular all the time. And I say this again, because the difference was that I was perceived as Republican and I was perceived as a Trump supporter. It wasn't that I was less black than other people who use this type of vernacular all the time. And to, to bring it back to the, to the discussion about the book and the pandemic, uh, we have to try to, to understand when our partisanship and when our bias is impacting our ability to absorb information and when it's leading us astray. I want to give you one more quick example. This was July of 2020. Um, uh, President Trump announced he was going to have a uh, rally at Mount Rushmore on the 4th of July. Remember that? I do. And the media, particularly the liberal media, lost their minds. And I was asked to come on and talk about uh, how to stay safe. They literally said to me, Dr. Adams, can you come on and tell people how to stay safe from COVID over the 4th of July? And I said, sure, I'm the Surgeon General. I want to tell people how to stay safe. So I go on the show and I'm sitting in the green room and here's the lead in. Uh, Donald Trump wants to hold a maskless rally this 4th of July. Our experts say thousands could be affected, hundreds could die. Coming up next, Donald Trump, Surgeon General to explain. And that was the lead in. And I came on and I explained what I explained to everyone. You need to understand your risk. You need to understand the tools that you have available and you need to make a smart choice about what you choose to do. But it's not my job to tell you that you shouldn't go to a 4th of July rally any more than it's my job to tell you you shouldn't go to a Black Lives Matter rally. And at that very time, there were many Black Lives Matter rallies going on. And uh, in many ways, public health was seen as hypocritical because they wanted to criticize one and not the other when the virus didn't care which one you were going to. How much did President Trump's presence at those briefings complicate what you and the others on the task force were trying to accomplish? That is a very interesting and wonderful question. So the honest truth is, in the beginning, we very much wanted to have the platform of the president and the presence of the president to get people to pay attention. Because in the beginning, People were blowing it off. And it wasn't just Republicans. Nancy Pelosi, you can look this up. Uh, 
in March of 2020 was walking through Chinatown saying Chinatown is open for business. Why? Because politicians want businesses in the economy to do well, particularly in an election year. So we thought if the president was next to us as we're talking, it would help people take these things seriously. But the challenge of 2020 was that it wasn't just COVID. It was also an incredibly divisive presidential election. Mm -hmm. And it quickly got to the point where whatever you said, it was framed as pro-Biden or pro-Trump. You talk about masking, you're pro-Biden or pro-Trump. You talk about vaccines, you're pro-Biden or pro-Trump. And interestingly enough, in 2020, it was pro-Trump to be pro-vaccine. And Kamala Harris actually said, I'm not going to trust a vaccine that comes out this year. So uh, again, everything that we were saying from a purely scientific point of view was framed through a political lens. And so it became very difficult, very complicated to be associated with the president. And it got easier when we actually went out to the states. Deb Burks actually said, let's go out and let's talk to people in the states. I talk about this in the book. And I went to Montana and I went to Mississippi and I went to Connecticut and I went all over the country at risk to my own personal health because we didn't have a vaccine at that time. And mm -hmm. I have asthma. Um, but I did it because my, the message was received very differently when you're in someone's state, when you're in someone's community, talking to them about their numbers and when you're not next to Donald Trump and when it's not being framed through the national media uh, who is more interested in the election than they are about COVID. Dr. Adams, was it demoralizing to hear the president grasping for medical or pseudo-medical straws like hydroxychloroquine or light or disinfectant? I wouldn't say it was demoralizing because we go through this all the time. What I would say is that it certainly made things complicated because the president tends to to think out loud. Um, and and he tends it, it, honestly. Yes. And, and so so there were things that a strength we, and a weakness. So, exactly. And some people love that about him. He, spe he speaks his mind. And so uh, I want to I want to be very real about this. We were we were in task force meetings talking about can we kill COVID with light therapy, UV light therapy? Can we kill COVID with disinfectants? And so these were real conversations the president was hearing. And he was then going out to the podium and and thinking out loud in a way that wasn't quite ready for prime time. And then it made it very difficult for us to communicate that nuance to people that, hey, we don't want you to, to go and act on this at this point in time, even hydroxychloroquine. And there was a time when we said, hey, let's study this. It may have some benefit. Uh, we, we, uh, I want to give a real example. And people talk about hydroxychloroquine. Um, we thought conventional wisdom was to put people on ventilators early on if they got COVID. We later found out that was killing people that we didn't want to put them on ventilators early. So there's a lot we were learning in real time. And the challenge for us was that we would talk about it. And then in, uh, in many cases, the president would, would then relay it to the public before we had a chance to fully vet it. I want to pick up on that point when we come back for segment three of The Takeout. Our conversation continues with Dr. Jerome Adams. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. 
Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to The Takeout. Our guest, Dr. Jerome Adams. Again, Happy New Year to everyone. Happy 2024. His book is Crisis and Chaos. I want to pick up on something you said right before we went to break, Dr. Adams, and I want to frame it this way, because I see a lot of post-COVID or we think we're post-COVID, but we're not, hanging of quotes or hanging of decisions around the necks of people in the public space. Mm -hmm. And I said at the very beginning of COVID, something that I intuitively felt is that everyone in the public space will get at least one thing wrong about this. (laughs) Everyone will. With the best of intentions, relying on the best available information, everyone, if they're lucky, will only get one thing wrong. And they may get five things wrong, not because they're trying to mislead you, not because they're intentionally wrong, but because this is going to move. I didn't know anything about the science, but I knew enough to say this is going to move and our adaptions will vary and our sense of certainty will vary. And I think it's an incredibly harmful thing that we hang around people's necks, something that we disagreed with and say, well, that's what you told me and you did it. And I either hate you or disagree with you or never listen to you again. I think that's going to be a harmful thing for us going forward. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the lessons from the book is that we need to improve our, our basic elementary education about the scientific process in this country. Science is not about always being right, but it is about always trying to learn from your mistakes and to improve moving forward. And people wanna say, as you mentioned, hey, you were wrong. Well, yeah, we were wrong a lot. We were well-intended and we took the best information we had available at the time to make a recommendation. That recommendation was wrong and we pivoted. Right, whether it was ventilators or masks or anything. Or anything, and the challenge is that if you don't change, People say, well, you were stubborn and you weren't following science. And if you do change, people say, well, see, you were wrong. We can't ever trust you again. And again, I think it reflects in many ways a poor understanding of the way um, science and the scientific process works. What's what's tough for people, um, and I was having this discussion with someone recently. Usually, if a new scientific discovery comes out, we go and we have journal articles that only the scientists read because the public doesn't usually read journal articles. And then we go to meetings and we hash it out in meetings in these big internal meetings. And it actually takes five to 10 years for most scientific um, innovations to actually reach the public. In 2020, it was taking five minutes. A preprint of a journal article would come out <laughs> and then it would be on the news because everyone was home watching and the news needed right. more fuel than they ever need, had before. Social media And then we're saying, well, actually, that study is a bad study or no, that's not quite what that says. Or, oh, that's it's only in that one particular patient population. It's only in white males in Iceland that, you know, that they that they they did this study. And so the public saw the sausage get made in a way that that was really, uh, really uncomfortable and really jarring for folks. But I also think um, and again, this goes back to the politics that we talked about. There were in many cases, um, different agendas that were being um, intertwined and entangled. And there were people 
who were defending Black Lives Matter rallies while condemning Trump rallies in the name of science. And when you do that, you only get one shot because when you get it wrong, then the public's going to say, well, I'm not going to trust anything else you're ever going to say because are you saying it because it's the scientific truth? Or are you saying it because it is a means to a political end or a different agenda that you have? And so both of those things really hurt us in 2020. And we need to learn those lessons moving forward so we can have legitimate discussions um, with our neighbors, even when we disagree with them politically. You mentioned earlier MPOX. It used to be called broadly across the scientific community monkeypox. Yes. Uh, you attribute that reassessment in part to what I think everyone would regard as then President Trump's incautious, and that's being diplomatic, reference to COVID as China virus or the Kung flu. Yes. So so uh, this is actually an interesting um discussion point. Uh, people rightly, rightly, in my opinion, um, uh, uh, condemned the the remarks that, that were stigmatizing certain communities. However, the president said, and I think fairly, science has been doing this for years, the Marburg virus, you know, uh, there, there are so many different, um, different virus, West Nile virus. There's so many different and as you mentioned monkeypox and so spanish flu had nothing to do with spain exactly and and we and we very much um have done that over the years and i think that 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 is something that we did get right coming out of the pandemic we learned the lesson and we were forced to do that and to many in many cases acknowledge our own hypocrisy because um many people saw what the president said and did and said we can't do this anymore and so that's not to give um, Donald Trump credit for it. Um, it's to say that, hey, we can learn some positive lessons coming out of this pandemic and actually do better moving forward. And and again, you saw that happen very quickly with, with MPOX. In general, what would you say we need to learn as a society from school closings as related to COVID? Well, uh, number one, you can't make good policy decisions without good data. And um, uh, I hear all this call to, to defund the CDC. One of our big problems is that we, the CDC didn't have the, the, the ability to pull in real-time data so that we could make informed decisions. And how does this relate to schools? Well, Tony Fauci and I are getting calls in March of 2020 from, uh, from our friends and colleagues in New York City hospitals, literally saying, we're dying here, we're imploding. And this is on the heels of Italy's healthcare system collapsing, China's healthcare system collapsing. And we didn't have the data to tell us that what's happening in New York isn't happening in Boise, Idaho. And so we literally had to say, shut the whole country down. That's our recommendation. We could make better recommendations in the future if we had better data. I think we have to understand that, that policymakers can't make good decisions with poorly funded public health infrastructure that can't give them the appropriate data to understand disease burden. Uh, we also learned that, hey, we need to think not just about when we turn on measures, but when we turn them off. It was appropriate in the beginning, particularly from a precautionary principle standpoint, to say, hey, let's shut it down, because most of science believed rightly so, that schools were the perfect petri dish for the spread of a respiratory virus. You got kids breathing and coughing and laughing and licking on each other. Um, I, I can, that, that was a scientifically sound decision at the time. But we didn't think as much as we 
should have or could have about, okay, how long do we do this for? When do we turn it off? And it absolutely went on way too long. And then the, the final point is we have to understand it's not just about your physical health, but your mental health. People can die from COVID, but people also die from isolation. People also die from lack of education. Uh, interestingly enough, we saw child abuse reporting go down during the pandemic. It's not because child abuse went down. It's because most child abuse reporting happens when Johnny shows up at school with a black eye and the teacher says, oh my gosh, what's going on and reports it. So we have to understand that it's more than just one, we, we got to learn to walk and chew gum at the same time. We can't mm -hmm. just focus on one health issue at the expense of, of everything else that makes you healthy in your life. And and we're still going to pay the the and the cost for that for many, many years moving forward. Uh, an encouraging study from the NCAA, though, that came out recently um, that showed that um, depression is going down in their athletes, um, that education um, is, is catching up. So we can do better um, if we focus on the future instead of just focusing on pointing fingers and looking backwards. Uh, Dr. Adams, I want to start this conversation. It will lay over into segment four. What's the difference in your mind between vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaxxers? Ah, so this is a wonderful, wonderful question. I think that we allow the the true, the anti-vaxxers or vaccine-resistant people to have way too much um, voice and to dominate conversations. And we do that because we characterize anyone who's unvaccinated as an anti-vaxxer, when the majority statistically of people who are unvaccinated are not against vaccines. They actually uh, are people who are worried that they might get sick and can't take time off work tomorrow. Or they're people who are working three jobs and can't get to the CVS that closes at 6 p.m. in our in our neighborhood. Uh, they, they've got children and they can't get and no child care and they can't get someone to take care of them. Or they just have legitimate questions and they don't have actually a provider who can, they can talk to. Hold right there, Dr. Adams. Like I said, this would lay over into segment four. It will do precisely that. Our conversation continues when we come back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to The Takeout. Again, Happy New Year. Our guest, Dr. Jerome Adams, his book, Crisis and Chaos, continuing our conversation anti-vaxxers or vaccine hesitant? Keep going, Dr. Adams. January of 2020, I was actually on my way to American Samoa because of a measles outbreak there that had killed 83 children. 83 children died from measles uh, in 2019. We almost lost our measles eradication status because of outbreaks in Rockford, New York, in uh, the state of Washington, in Portland, Oregon. 
Why was this happening? It was happening because, uh, again, vaccine resistant people are, are, are preying on communities with misinformation and causing them to, to not take advantage of, of, of these vaccines that are, that are widely available. This wasn't new. This wasn't invented by Donald Trump. This is something that, that had been brewing for years. And what's interesting is the vaccine-resistant crowd prior to 2020, especially, leaned heavily Democratic. It was actually, I mean, who's the most famous uh, vaccine-resistant anti-vaxxer? It's RFK. It was someone who was literally junior. running, you know, junior. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying junior, you know? And so, so we have to understand this was there. The fuel was there and COVID in many ways, I often say was not the problem. It was actually the magnifying glass. It actually um, showed us the problem and amplified it, whether it was health inequities, whether it was lack of, of paid time off for people at work, um, whether it was, um, whether it was uh, the, the the vaccine hesitancy that's increasing out there. But uh, all that is to say, we have a lot of work to do moving forward to combat misinformation and to help restore confidence in vaccines, because now we're seeing more and more children not getting uh, their, their regular childhood vaccines. And we're going to see the comeback of things like measles, rubella, Polio. This isn't just about COVID, and that's going to have a devastating impact on our society, um, not just from a, a uh, mortality or death perspective, but from a morbidity perspective, missed work, missed school, increased health care costs. Was there ever such a thing worth considering as natural immunity to COVID? Well, that's another situation where um, both sides are right. And what I mean by that is um, we could not rely on this concept of of uh, of community acquired immunity, meaning from exposure to the virus early on, because we just didn't know what we didn't know. And so we have to understand that, number one, um, we can't recommend something uh, it, to people if we don't know that it's true in a vacuum. Um, Number two, I, I honestly believe that we should have done a much better job of ramping up antibody testing so that we could understand who was infected because there was some benefit and there is some benefit and uh, protection from being um, from being infected. Uh, but we can't let people believe that, that, that any more than the chicken pox parties that we used to have that the appropriate thing to do is to go out and get purposefully exposed to a potentially deadly virus. So that so so there's the conversation of if you accidentally got exposed, do you have some protection? And yes, but we can't use that to say, well, everyone should just go out there and rely on this uh, on this natural immunity to protect themselves. And what we're seeing now, quite frankly, is the virus has evolved to the point that you aren't getting great protection from. Um, naturally acquired immunity um, or from uh, from vaccines in terms of transmission. Uh, but what we do know is that if you have been vaccinated, you have a very much lower risk of hospitalization and death. Right. Which that also strikes me, Dr. Adams, is one of the things that were either mischaracterized intentionally or just genuinely misunderstood what the vaccine would do for you. It wouldn't guarantee that you would never get the virus, but it would improve your chances of avoiding serious illness or hospitalization if you had been vaccinated. Well, and this is again where politicization comes in. I can tell you 
honestly, that in the very beginning, um, we had good data that, that told us that if you got vaccinated, you had very low risk of transmission of the virus. That was absolutely true in, in 2020 when we were studying the vaccines and, and early 21. Um, and then the science changed because the virus continued to evolve. So again, science changes. That's number one. But number two, and I say this in the book, uh, I actually think one of the most harmful things that the Biden administration did was to proclaim this a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Um, because it really set up this idea that that the unvaccinated, and he was specifically, uh, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, saying Republicans were the reason this pandemic continued continued on. And then guess what? The virus evolved, uh, mutated, and the vaccines were no longer as protective against transmission. And he ended up with egg on his face, and it looked like he was saying this for, from a very political standpoint instead of from a scientific standpoint. Shaming and blaming never um, is an effective long-term strategy for health engagement. It may get you elected, but it's not going to help you engage from a health um, perspective. And, and I think that's a lesson that we need to take moving forward. We can't point fingers at people and say, you're a Republican, you're bad, or you're a Democrat, you're bad. We need to say, what are your concerns and how do we address them so that we can help you make the healthiest choice possible? On the vaccine itself, you were uh, an observer, a very close observer of the underlying science in Operation Warp Speed. There was a conversation then, it continues now, that the underlying technology had, quote, never been used before, and therefore this was something untested, therefore scary. Walk my audience through what you know about that. Well, uh, what I, the example I give is like a, a video game console. Uh, we had the technology. We had the console there. We'd been working on it for a decade. Uh, and what we needed to do in 2020 was actually change out the game. Uh, we needed to take the 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 uh, genetic code for for the SARS-CoV-2 virus and plug it into this console that had been developed. And that's that's how we ended up with the with the vaccine. So this is not um, new or untested technology. That said, um, there is a stigma against the mRNA vaccines in many communities. And I want your, your listeners and viewers to know that we have Novavax, which is a protein-based vaccine now available moving forward. We've got new tools and we need to continue to push Operation Warp Speed um, or Project Next Gen is what the Biden administration has renamed it because when you take over in politics, you've got to act like everything that the old people did was bad and just rename it into something new. Um, but um, uh, we need to develop even better vaccines, nasal vaccines, vaccines that are more durable um, and, and resistant to variants. And we need better oral antivirals moving forward so that people who are continued to be vaccine hesitant or vaccine resistant can still get good treatment on the back end when they do get COVID. I think these are all things that, that Operation Warp Speed set up, set the table for that we need to continue to capitalize on. And um, it's worth noting, because you did so at the beginning, the death tolls sadly, tragically, for both administrations are roughly equivalent. Mm -hmm. What it means is that this premise that we were sold on in 2020, that simply changing the president and the CDC director and the Surgeon General and the FDA commissioner was going to drastically change our outcomes has been unequivocally proven to be false. And, and so that is a lesson from the book. Yes, leadership matters. Yes, federal leadership matters. But uh, this is about so much more than who's sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That it's is the about, voice of Dr. Uh, Jerome Adams. His book is Crisis and Chaos. That concludes this episode. Stay tuned. I 
thoroughly and eagerly endorse the idea of you staying tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial, the first of 2024. We'll see you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial, the first of our new year, 2024. Our guest, Dr. Jerome Adams, Surgeon General in the Trump administration, his book, Crisis and Chaos. Uh, Dr. Adams, I want to shift our focus ever so slightly uh, away from COVID and RSV to some general topics which you raise in the book. And I wonder, do you believe it's possible for anyone in the public health community to talk candidly, I mean really candidly, about obesity, alcohol, drug addiction, without tripping over or being tripped by those who are uncomfortable with that kind of candid talk? because it jars their either sense of politeness or political sensibilities? Well, I, I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of the difficulty of having these conversations. And you want to have these conversations in an authentic way where you're not victim blaming. And here's how we have those conversations in an authentic way. We need the data. And unfortunately, um, we don't have good demographic data. We don't have great real-time data on who's being impacted by different diseases. One of the great things about COVID is that for a while there, literally everyone in America could get on the website and find their COVID hospitalization numbers and their COVID infection numbers for their local community. We proved we can do it. We need to do that for drug overdoses. We need to do that for diabetes. We need to do that for cancer rates. And if we do that, then we can Th th then the numbers speak for themselves. We can say, look, I'm not doing saying this in a stigmatizing way. Here are the numbers. Let's talk about why people who are more obese are, are at risk for COVID. Let's talk about why. Or, men other, or other ailments. Let's talk about why men who have sex with men are more likely to get impox in the current outbreak. And that was another example of difficulty in having these conversations uh, that was limited, again, by lack of data. Right. And having the candid conversation isn't, in its origin, victim blaming. It's just describing what the lived reality is. And if you don't do that, there are greater risks. Well, well they're, they're absolutely greater risks because you're ignoring um, those communities who most need help. But but a point that, again, I make in the book, and it, it relates to, to broader discussions, is politics. When you talk about victim blaming, Part of the reason it happens and part of the reason you're accused of victim blaming is because certain constituencies tend to associate with certain political parties. And so it's easy for people to say, oh, you're only picking on those folks 
because they're poor white obese in the South. So you're only picking on those folks because they're inner city gay blacks, uh, you know, meaning code for Democrats or Republicans. Right. And we also need to remember, I don't want to gloss over this, in the early stages of the AIDS epidemic, there was a sense of victim blaming and ostracization and stigmatization that was deeply harmful, not only to the research, but to the interventions and the pursuit of, of, of treatments. So it's, it's a real thing. I'm not suggesting that it isn't, but there are ways to work around it. Exactly. We have to acknowledge that, that stigma and victim blaming is a real thing, but we also need to talk about who is truly most at risk for different diseases uh, and threats. And again, we do that with the data. With good data, the data speaks for itself, uh, and we don't have to, to use conjecture um, in order to, to try to get us to a place where we can have this discussion. So uh, back to COVID ever so briefly, because I want my audience to be reminded of this if they missed it. Uh, they very well might have, because I know I didn't see it when I came across it in the book. You yourself were uh, in the barrel, as it were, not in the political context, not in the televised context, but in the restricted context, meaning you were in Hawaii and ran afoul unintentionally of local restrictions and walk my audience through that experience and what it tells you and what it recommends for future restrictions. Well, in, in my book, I'm very honest about mistakes that I made um, and mistakes that that um, public health officials made and mistakes that we made in terms of interpreting situations. So I was in Hawaii to actually open up a testing site, a COVID testing site. I'd been on a plane for 14 hours, um, flown a direct flight from, from Dulles. And, um, you know, and I get get there and I'm like, I want to stretch my legs. So I go out for a walk. Understandably. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Walk along an empty beach. And in Hawaii, um, you could walk on the beaches during COVID, but you couldn't. But the parks were closed. But you had to walk through the park to get to the beach. So here was my mistake. I actually paused for 20 seconds in the park to take a picture um, uh, in the park. And that was enough for me to get a ticket a $5,000 ticket and a threat of jail time. And it became this whole big deal um, of Surgeon General, Trump's, of course, Trump's Surgeon General not following COVID precautions. And uh, everyone else who got a ticket like that had their ticket dropped. Mine was not dropped. Um, everyone knows Hawaii is a very democratic state. And, and it was very obvious who I was working for. So it was a fascinating combination of of nonsensical regulations, um, of, of politicization going on. And I think in the future, um, we need to, to really be more thoughtful about restrictions. We need to explain why they're happening. Um, and, and, and sometimes we need to say, look, you know, we, we did this out of an abundance of precaution. We're sorry we messed up, <laughs> you know, right. and, and just be honest about that. I mean, we did, there was no need in hindsight to have these parks completely closed and and shut down. It, it did harm. There's a lot of just silly things that happened in 2020. Again, precautionary principle, but in hindsight, we need to own it. That, that hey, that, that was silly and, 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 and uh, we don't want to do that again. Dr. Adams, on this program, we ask our guests three threshold questions. Our audience loves the answer because it helps them get a sense of who they've been listening to. <laughs> So in whatever order you prefer, uh, most influential book in your life and why, all-time favorite movie, and if you're on a long flight or a long drive and going to enjoy your favorite kind of music, what artist or genre is that most likely to be? Favorite book is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. 
I think it does a really great job of helping people understand um, that your circumstances um, help predict your outcome as much as, as, as your effort. And so I love that. My, my favorite movie is The Princess Bride. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, it's just my constant go-to. It makes me happy every time, every time I, I see it, I can quote, you know, multiple lines from, from, I can quote most of the movie. It drives my kids Inconceivable. crazy. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. Exactly. Exactly. And I talk about this in the book too. Actually funny that line. I talk about how crazy it is to have a poor black rural kid who has a speech impediment. Like I'm hearing that in that that's, that's me. You know, uh, and so, and then you said favorite music. I actually, believe it or not, I was in an acapella choir growing up and I sang for Barbara Bush at the White House. Um, you know, George Bush's mother, not not his wife, his mother. Um, and so I love all different kinds of of music. But uh, Michael Jackson, Off the Wall, has got to be my, go- my, uh, my go-to album. I love old school MJ. You and uh, literally... Tens of millions of others would cite that album because of its uh, global success. Dr. Jerome Adams, it's been our pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Best of luck and Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year. We'll see you later, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.